Well, hello, friends. Welcome to In With The Old. We are a video podcast devoted to dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's Word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. My name is Dr. Tim Howe, and uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to be joined by my co-host, Dr. Brian Koning. Uh, He got stuck in a meeting, and so when you have a live podcast, you got to go live uh, when you schedule your live stream. And uh, he's going to hop on here in a few minutes, and tonight we're going to continue our CounterPoint series. Uh, But of course, if you missed last week, I encourage you uh, to go and and find the discussion uh, that that Dr. Brian had last week about Second Temple Judaism. I know it will benefit you. And until Dr. Brian uh, hops on here with me, I want to share a little bit about why I was gone last week. As Dr. Brian said, I was out. And uh, I was out actually not uh, roaming on a beach somewhere, but I was actually in Israel and had an incredible trip. Uh, I had never been to Israel before. And so as uh, Brian comes uh, back on here in a few minutes, or Brian comes to us here in a few minutes, I'd like to share just a little bit about my trip. And of course, as we think about Israel. Uh, Israel refers to the land of Palestine, right? The the land of Canaan, as it's described in the Old Testament. It's a tiny stretch of land uh, on the uh, coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's the land that God gave to Abraham. It's the land that Jesus called home. And as we think about the the land of Israel, uh, there's so much to describe, so much to see. Uh, and when I went, it was an overwhelming experience. And I'll tell you up front, we were very thankful. Uh, we got out of country about 18 hours before anything began uh, in terms of attacks, but we were we were that close. And uh, while we were in country, we really had no idea of anything that was simmering or, or going on. And of course, no one did. So uh, I, I want to say thank you to Brian for uh, having the time with our, our guest last week. And I want to just share a little bit about uh, my own impression of being in Israel. Again, I hadn't been there before, but a few things stand out to me. The first is, uh, when I thought about Israel beforehand, I had no idea for just the the geographical context, how confined it was in a small area. Uh, the, The entire nation of Israel is about the size of New Jersey. Uh, which means at points it stretches from east to west about 30 to 40 miles. Uh, and from north to south, it's about roughly 150 miles. So it's a very small area. And uh, particularly when we were in the Sea of Galilee, uh, we went around all around Galilee up to Caesarea Philippi far in the north. Uh, we went all the way down to Masada in the south. But the Sea of Galilee in particular, you you probably know this, the Sea of Galilee isn't actually a sea at all. It's actually a freshwater lake. And it's fed by a few sources, but mainly the Jordan River out of the north side of Israel. And uh, as we went to the Sea of Galilee, uh, it was amazing to me how uh, small it actually was. And it's difficult to describe, but when you think of the Sea of Galilee, I had several pictures. And if uh, you want to look on Facebook, you can follow me at at Timothy Howe. You can see a lot of these pictures that I took. When you look at these pictures, you could see across the Sea of Galilee so easily from one side to the other. It was really just a few miles. Uh, And as Dr. Brian looks like he's about to come on here, Dr. Brian, uh, welcome to the podcast. I was just explaining about uh, my trip a little bit and saying that really the the country, the nation of Israel and the, the land of Palestine is so much smaller uh, in one sense than I expected it to be. So much to see uh, in such a short period of time. So I don't know, maybe someday we'll do an entire episode uh, where I can just share some of those experiences and maybe we'll wait until you uh, go on your Holy Land trip. I know that's coming up relatively soon and we can talk more about the geography of the Holy Land. But Welcome to the podcast, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for letting me roll in a little bit late. So no <laughs> sound check or anything. So I apologize if uh, something's not set up right. But um, yeah, apologies. Got caught in traffic and caught in a meeting. Uh, but yeah, I had you going there, Tim, on my end. So yeah, it was, thank you for starting to share about your trip. We're very thankful that you got out just before uh, kind of all the current issues arose. So uh, thanks for sharing yeah. a little bit. Bit about that, and very happy to have you back here and back home safe. Well, thank you, Brian. And I really enjoyed. I haven't listened to the full episode yet from last week, but I've enjoyed getting into it. And uh, I want to thank our guests for for joining for joining us last week. 
Uh, Dr. Brian, so we're, we're coming into this hot, right? There's been no discussion about this beforehand as you and I jump into the, the <laughs> counterpoint topic for tonight. How scary is that? Uh, uh, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So Brian and I, for those of you who don't know us, we do like to be prepared. And of course, we uh, we think about these topics well ahead of time. And, and usually Brian and I uh, jump on here and we discuss it. We we kind of prep ourselves. We always pray and, and just seek the Lord. Uh, but Dr. Brian, uh, it's good to see you. It's good to talk to you. It's been a couple of weeks since we've got to to chat. But mm-hmm. as we come to tonight, we're we're discussing a topic in our counterpoint series uh, that that is really a, a tender topic. And a, a lot of times, as we we think about issues with the Old Testament, some of them can be kind of brainy. They can be kind of cerebral. We have to kind of orient ourselves before even having the discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is something that that is a lot more personal. Uh, in many ways. So uh, Dr. Brian and I tonight are going to be discussing the age of accountability. And in particular, we're going to be discussing the age of accountability as it as it's referenced or potentially not referenced in uh, some famous Old Testament passages. And so uh, just to kind of give Brian a chance to, to, to get his feet under him and join us, I'm going to go ahead and, and approach this topic first. And uh, there All are right. several passages that the, the uh, Old Testament speaks to the reality of uh, of children dying uh, very young. And then, of course, the question is, what do we believe happens to these children uh, when they die? And uh, for many of us, we grew up in traditions where there was a, a doctrine known as the age of accountability that was taught to us. And uh, Brian, I don't know about you, but there were some, at least in, in kind of my circles growing up, that actually believed they could name the age of accountability, that because of uh, when Jewish children would reach the age of maturity in that culture, uh, I had people say, you know, the age of accountability is 12 for every child, and and uh, and sometimes they would put a, a pretty big stake in the ground saying that was true. Mm-hmm. But I think what we want to do tonight is talk about the age of accountability as a doctrine, but particularly talk about some of the texts and try and address or or look at some of the texts that people say might teach an age of accountability. And in our Counterpoint series, here's what we do. We both lay out our position, and then we switch it back to the other. Uh, and then we have time for uh, us to ask questions of each other, and then you ask questions of us. And that's uh, basically what we're going to be doing here. So. Uh, the te- text that's often cited when it comes to an age of accountability in the Old Testament comes from the book of 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 23. And this is a passage that may be well known to you, it may not, but this is essentially a, a, a passage that takes place after David has, has fallen, after he has uh, committed the sin with Bathsheba, he's taken advantage of her, he's, he's brought her in, a child is produced, uh, the child eventually dies. Uh, and in Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, essentially David says this, and this is a bit of a paraphrase, but he says, I... Uh, He's he's mourning. He's in a period of mourning, and essentially he says, and I'll just I'll just find it here because I've got it open, so I'll read it. He answered, "This is verse twenty-two, leading into twenty-three. While the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he will never return to me." So some people look at that and say, well, here you go. This is talking about David going to be with his child. And of course, the assumption there is that David is saved, that he is uh, that he is right with God, so that when he dies, he's going to go be with God. And therefore, if David says he is going to be with his child, that means his child is already in the hands of God in heaven. Uh, but I think that Brian and I are, are probably going to have substantial agreement on this, that when it comes to the Old Testament, we really don't see a developed view of heaven enough to say that that's what this passage refers to. In fact, and this is something that that is frustrating sometimes with the Old Testament, but I think it's true, 
a lot of times the doctrines that we have fully developed in the New Testament really only appear in shadow form in the Old Testament. And when it comes to the doctrine of the afterlife, the Old Testament has a, a very developed doctrine of Sheol, uh, but the Bible really says that essentially everyone who dies in the Old Testament understanding goes to the same place. They go to Sheol. And you can read about this in the book of Ecclesiastes. You can read about this in the book of Psalms. Uh, the, the psalmists and, and many inspired authors seem to say that Sheol is the destination of each person. And so as we look at this, I don't think we can import that understanding of the New Testament. That won't come until later on this text. I think we have to take it at face value and say, okay, David believes that he's going to join that child in death, but at least for this passage, I don't think it's a reference to heaven. Uh, so if that's true, and Brian's going to share his view in, in just a few minutes, but if that's true, and David essentially saying he's going to join his child in Sheol, what do we make of this doctrine of the age of accountability? What do we do with this idea that children who die are going to the place of holding, which is essentially what Sheol is? It's a shadowy place, but a, a place where all the dead are going uh, in essentially a holding pattern. What do we make of this idea of an age of accountability? Well, I don't believe that 2 Samuel 12, 23 teaches that comprehensively, but I do want to spend my time discussing another verse that I think gives us some hints. Uh, as I've used in previous episodes, I think the Old Testament rarely presents a comprehensive theology for us, but I think at times we do have breadcrumbs, or at least in this, I think we have some seeds that are planted that point us towards God's treatment of children in particular, and his righteous judgment of those who don't have the same level of awareness as adults. And as I'm going to say in a minute, I think that actually expands beyond children. So the, the text that I want to look at is Deuteronomy chapter 1 in verse 39. And uh, it's a very simple verse. It comes at the uh, beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. And I think before we even look, look at the verse, we need to remind ourselves, the Bible does not come to us in nice, neat, preset theological categories. The Bible comes to us often in narratives, in stories, in, in poems, in reactions. In other words, it's a very real life and raw document that then we try to look at and synthesize theology from. And I think that's important because it's not always nice and neat, but I think this verse teaches us some really important things. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. This is Deuteronomy chapter 9, or 1, rather, verse 39. This is Moses speaking, and he's speaking about the wilderness generation that didn't get to go in the land, but he says this regarding their children. This is Deuteronomy 139. Your children, whom you said would be plunder, your sons who don't yet know good from evil, they will enter there, and I will give them the land, and they will take possession of it. Now, there are a few things that I briefly want to discuss about this text in this passage. First is, I, I want you to notice in this passage, Moses is indicting the parents, the wilderness generation who did not have faith and who didn't enter in. And here's why, because he says of them, and I'm going to read it again, he says, you believed or you said your children or your sons would be plunder. And it says that these children didn't yet know good from evil, which means they were very young. So Moses looks at them and he says, you believed that you knew better the fate of your children than God did. In fact, you believed that you could take care of your children better than God could take care of them. And as I look at this text, I think that's very important because Moses is indicting them, essentially saying, no, you thought that you cared about your children more than God did. That is impossible. And so I think that's, again, a seed that's planted to help us understand. We can trust God with the fate of our children. The next thing I think this text shows is that there is a different level of judgment or a level of accountability, if you will, based on the description that they were not yet old enough to know good from evil. Now again, this isn't a comprehensive picture of, say, a doctrine of original sin, and I don't even think it's comprehensive in terms of an age of accountability, but what it does tell us is that God, as a righteous judge, takes into account the knowledge that a person has whenever they're committing a sin. 
And by the way, this isn't just something that's mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. We see this famously in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. It's repeated there twice, that there will be a child who will grow up, and before that child knows good from evil, uh, the kings who stand against Israel will be thwarted, and Israel will be saved. So this idea of a child being young enough to not yet know good from evil is something we see multiple times in Scripture. And then this third point, in other words, the first one is the parents believe they knew better than God or cared about their children more than God. The second seed is that there is a different level of judgment based on knowledge. But the third is, and this is a little bit more subtle, but I think it's at least hinted at here. It says that because they did not yet know good from evil, they will enter the land and God will give them possession of it. Now, what I don't believe is that Deuteronomy chapter 1 is talking in salvific terms or in terms of salvation. I don't think those people were automatically saved in Deuteronomy chapter 1. But what I do see throughout the Old Testament and in the New is that the idea of the promised land or the idea of entering into the land of rest is shadowed or foreshadowing the rest that's to come. So you look at Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1, it's echoed in, say, Psalm 95, where God says, you will not enter my rest, using the promised land as a, a stand-in for his presence, uh, his, his, his rest in terms of being with him. And you see that picture picked up again in, in Hebrews chapter 3, where uh, the author of the book of Hebrews uses the promised land and that idea of rest as an ultimate resting place. In other words, Hebrews 3 picks up on that idea of rest in the promised land. Uh, it does use it in terms of salvation. So even though I don't think that's specifically what Deuteronomy 1 says, I do think it's a seed where those little ones who were too young to know good from evil, God took care of them. They were ultimately able to enter into his rest. And as the scriptures unfold, that idea of rest eventually culminates in the idea of rest in terms of salvation. I don't think it's fully fleshed out here, but I think there are some seeds that are planted that ultimately come to fruition later. So my position is, Brian, and I'm going to kick it over to you in just a moment. My position is that even though none of these texts, whether it's 2 Samuel 12, 23, or Deuteronomy 139, or other texts that people cite, none of those is comprehensive, but I would argue that they plant enough seeds so that when we look to the New Testament and see a fuller picture, that we do see God treating those children in a different way because of their lack of the knowledge of good and evil. And the last thing I'll say is this, Brian, I think that Paul points to that in Romans chapter 1 when he talks about the ability for someone to reject the revelation of God in creation. And so, as I mentioned, I don't, I don't think the category of a different kind of accountability, I wouldn't call it an age of accountability for every child. I think it varies based on their own awareness and knowledge. But I actually think there are uh, differences that God sees in people who aren't able, whether because they're too young or because of some kind of disability or otherwise, who aren't able to recognize his revelation and creation. And so, therefore, I believe God takes that into account in his final judgment. And so do I believe in a single age of accountability? No, I don't. But do I believe that God judges people differently based on their ability to know right and wrong and respond to his revelation? I absolutely do. Not because of one single text, but because of several texts that plant a seed that ultimately comes to full fruition, I believe, in the New Testament. So, Dr. Brian, I took longer than I desired to there, but that's my position, and, uh, and I'd love to hear yours. No, that's all right. Thanks, Tim. Let me uh, quickly make sure everything was actually set up on my end. So thank you for outlining that position. Very well done. And um, as you said, this is actually going to be an interesting counterpoint because on at least one of the central texts, we agree, and I'll, I'll reflect on that a little bit, um, yeah. even though we do disagree in part on the final conclusion. Mm -hmm. So uh, listeners, this is a bit of an interesting topic, right? Because we're venturing we're stepping cautiously away from strictly like Old Testament biblical studies to the realm of theology. And you might say, well, get back in your lane, and fair enough. <laughs> uh, theologians need to help us and speak into this place. But one of the reasons we want to talk about this is the Age of Accountability is a theological idea founded almost entirely on Old Testament texts, not entirely, but mostly. And so we thought it was worth consideration here. and. 
To get us started, as Tim, I, I think, already said a little bit, the age of accountability is something that's never explicitly stated in the Bible. This is what we can call an inferred theological idea, right? And that in and of itself is not a problem. There are plenty of these things that we go, the Bible doesn't explicitly state vis-a-vis the Trinity, but we can clearly infer that from the text. It's a position that Tim also said some hold extremely strongly, mm-hmm. and I do understand that. So uh, my brief definition of the age of accountability is it's the idea that there's a tipping point in everyone's life. And that's when you possess the mental and spiritual awareness to really know right from wrong, to know that you're a sinner in need of a savior, right? That knowledge does require some sort of mental faculty, some sort of spiritual awakening. And prior to that point, what becomes of that person? Well, the age of accountability wrestles with that. Uh, And Uh, Proponents of this view would say, although you are born under the curse, you have original sin, God is going to bestow his favor in some sense upon these individuals. Sometimes you'll hear this idea brought up as infant salvation. I more prefer the term age of accountability or age of responsibility because this idea also not only impacts children, but can impact those with mental disabilities that no longer have or never possessed the mental faculties necessary. Now, some will posit very specific ages, uh, either 12 or 13. So 12, right, that's when Jesus is presented at the temple, or 13, uh, Jewish traditional age for bar or bat mitzvah, when you become a son or daughter of the commandments. You're viewed as being old enough to know what to do. Some would push it really far, by the way, Tim, and go up to the age of 20. They would do this on the basis of numbers one, because it's 20-year-olds or older that can fight in the army. And they go, Mm -hmm. ah, that's what an adult is. Mm -hmm. Tim isn't trying to hold an age. I wouldn't hold an age. Um, But if you see someone hold one of those ages, that is why. The importance of this theological idea, I think, is quite readily apparent. We all Mm -hmm. know people that have miscarried. And I feel fairly confident in that statement. And I feel that is a horribly tragic statement. We may also know someone that's lost a young child. Uh, I have friends that fit in both of those categories. I myself have not had to face that difficulty, but I do know those that do. That is a horrible tragedy and pain to face. So we want truth. And it's my contention, and I believe it's Tim's contention as well, that true healing is only found in true answers, in truth, not comforting lies. Lies never actually comfort at the end of the day. And so what we want to look at is, is this age of accountability just a comforting lie we tell ourselves, or is there biblical truth to this? So this is one way to answer the question of what happens to those children if they've been miscarried or if they've died young. Um, and, and the main theological text you'll find in articles or in a, a book about this idea is Second Samuel twelve thirteen or twelve twenty three. I agree with Tim. I do not think it teaches an age of accountability idea. Right. So as David uh, has his son with Bathsheba, the the child is killed. And David says that child will not return to me, but I will return to it. It's perfectly logical for us to go, oh, David is going to heaven. If he says he's going to see his son again, the son must be in heaven. That that's fairly uh, easy to follow logic. The difficulty is that imports New Testament ideas onto the Old Testament, as Tim already said. David does not have a dual destination afterlife in mind. He has a view that the dead go to one place. You cannot infer anything beyond that. Um, and that it's a problem that we've covered a couple times on this podcast. We can't read the New Testament back onto the Old Testament. At least not fully. Tim and I will disagree on how fully you can do that, if you can do it at all. <laughs> um, but we both agree that that's improper here. That's overreading what the text said. David would certainly not have that in mind. So I'm. What do we become? What do we do with age of accountability? I'll deal with Tim's passage in the question and answer time. I, I, this is the w- one text I see people really hang their hat on, and I say it doesn't teach an age of accountability. That doesn't make sense. Even Tim is going to say it doesn't make sense. So what do we do with that? Because I'm not out here to just kick over sandcastles and go, so you have no hope. No, I want to present what I think the Bible presents as true. There's a fundamental tension. And I love that word tension because I think that's at the heart of so many of our theological ideas. We have both a sin nature from Adam and our own actions. Even young children, if you're a parent, sin. (laughs) They do wrong. They do wrong knowing it is wrong. God 
So that's one piece of tension that we have a sin nature from Adam and that we have our own sin. There's these two parts to what sin comprises in our life. Secondly, I think the Bible very clearly says God has a special love and affection for children. Look at Jesus. Let the little children come to me. What is pure and undefiled religion? Care for widows and orphans, right? Children continually bubble to the top as something that God has a special love for. Alongside that, he is a righteous judge. He is the judge of the earth, and he is the one who judges sin. We can't get out of this conundrum by ignoring one of those aspects. So what do we do with it? Tim offers us maybe one way forward. I am less willing to say that that is an idea taught in the Bible. I am absolutely willing to admit that uh, ignorance of the law is not an excuse, but it is extenuated circumstances. I think that it's clear from the Bible that God does change how harshly he judges people based on how much they know. I don't see evidence that God withholds judgment based on someone not knowing something, even though he may mitigate the punishment for it. So what does that mean? Well, here's what I want to say, and I want to speak to uh, if any of those friends are listening today. Here is what I want to say, because I, I think we actually have hope. I think we actually have better hope than trying to say, oh, it's okay. The kid died before they were 12 or 13, as horrible as that sounds, but at least that means they got into heaven guaranteed. Put that aside. Uh, I, I'm going to look at the camera. Here's something I want to ask you to think about right now. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that God loved your child? Do you understand that God loved your child better and more than you can? All that love that you have, God has more. I go to Genesis chapter 1825. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? This is where I put my hope and trust. God is a God who loves you and loves that child, who gave up his son on the cross to pay for your sins, their sins, and the sins of the world. I don't know, and I'm going to say it, I don't know what is the fate of these individuals, but I know that he who judges the earth judges rightly. I believe that when we come to heaven at the end of the day, we will find no reason to fault God. We will find no cause for concern, nothing to disturb our serene peace and relationship with him. What does that mean? It means I don't know. They might be there. They might not be. I trust God to be just. There are so many hypotheticals. There are many different ways we could conceive of him being able to give them a chance, him looking into the future, him giving them postmortem options. Right, We can speculate, but at the end of the day, it is just speculation, Tim. And so I don't really want to go down that route terribly far because it would just be that, my, me speculating. Simply to say that I will trust that God will act rightly. God loves you and God loves that child and will do right by them. So that's my position. It's a little bit more succinct because there, uh, there's less to maybe dive into. I'm just saying I don't think you get it out of here. But uh, that's where I'm at. So Tim... Let me bring you on back in. Yeah. Um, let's talk about this. And so, uh, listeners, I just eyed over. I, I see we have a one chat I'm going to read here in a second, but please feel free to, to dive on in. And uh, we want to be sensitive. We want to be helpful. Our goal is not to, as I said, be kicking over sandcastles here, but to be trying to offer what, what we view as biblical truth that's comforting and, and loving. So, um, Tim, do you mind if I throw the first question your way? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it, Brian. All right. So uh, you brought up Deuteronomy uh, chapter one. Um, yes. So you do have this great phrase and it's used. And because I came in late, I can't find my notes with it. Uh, it uses the phrase that your children who do not yet go know good from bad. You also right. have that in Isaiah chapter seven. Mm -hmm. How much weight do you put behind that distinction, though, as making a theological claim, as opposed to just being an idiom for being a small child? Because you also have, for example, in Jonah chapter 4, when God is describing Nineveh, again, right. he's trying to just describe children, and he says those who do not know their right hand from their left. Right. Different phrase, but again, it's still just an idiomatic expression to say child. How much theological weight can we put behind this? What would you say? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And that's why that's why I really like Deuteronomy chapter 1 because it gives us uh in, in a sense a concrete application of what that idiom means. Namely, they are allowed to enter into the land for the reason that they do not know good and evil. And so this is, in a sense, God looking at the culpability or the blameworthiness of that wilderness generation, and he draws the line. And that's, by the way, it's an interesting point that you brought up about 20 years old. Uh, but he, he draws a line and he says, essentially, because they do not yet know good from evil, I am treating or judging them differently than those who do. Uh, so we see the outworking of what it means, even if we can't parse exactly uh, what the idiom itself refers to in terms of an age. So uh, how much theological weight do I put on it? I try to put only as much as, as the text itself does, which is to say that God judges them differently because of this. And I actually, uh, you know, I, I'm glad you brought up uh, Jonah, because uh, I think the, the passage in Jonah is a different idiom. They don't know their right hand from their left, but I think it speaks to the character of God. And, and Brian, I so appreciate your honesty, because essentially what your argument is, is, hey, I don't think there's a slam dunk text that we can, you know, build this doctrine off of, but we can know the heart of God through what has been revealed, and we can trust in his judgments. Well, I totally agree with that, and I think part of what God reveals is that God does uh, place a pretty heavy emphasis on the level of awareness we have when we sin, uh, as well as the relative ignorance of what we know or what uh, we're able to ascertain of God's revelation. So Jonah 4, they don't know the right hand from their left. It doesn't mean that they're not evil. It, it means that they they have uh, they haven't had the revelation of God to correct them in such a way that they have a greater level of awareness. Or I, I come back to this, uh, when we think about, we could call it gradations of judgment, gradations of awareness, whatever we want to call it. Jesus, in speaking to the, the people of Galilee, right? He says to the people of uh, Capernaum, he says to the, the, the people of Bethsaida, he says to them, if the miracles that were performed among you were performed in Sodom and Gomorrah, then they would have repented in sackcloth and ash long ago. But I tell you, it will be worse for you. Why? Because you have the greatest possible level of awareness. And so again, I don't think there's a, a, a comprehensive spectrum that you can point to and say, well, uh, ignorance entails innocence. I actually don't think that's true. I don't think that ignorance always does entail innocence. But I do think we can see in this text that at least there is uh, there is a grace that is shown to the children of the wilderness generation because of their age. And I do take that that idiom pretty squarely. I think not knowing good and evil doesn't mean like total innocence before God, but I do think it means that there isn't a culpability in making the choice of not trusting in God's plan when it came to entering the promised land. Sure. And I would um, definitely agree with you. What we're talking about here is ignorance can never mean innocence. I think Romans 1 would put the nail in the coffin in that the very mm -hmm. idea of general revelation of natural theology. Um, you can know a lot if you want to, without ever having seen the Bible, without ever seeing um, anything, what we call special revelation is the technical theological term. Right. Um, with that second generation though, uh, and one of my problems with reading Deuteronomy like you do, Tim, or at least mm -hmm. drawing such a firm conclusion out of it is one uh, we're dealing first with Sinaitic covenant relations. That is yep. far from a salvific relationship. Um, right. We are dealing with a generation that will be given their chance to decide their own fate. So right. the God is kind of almost prophesying in this passage, right? They are going to pass their test, but they are still going to be tested. And some of them actually will fail, even as they make it into the promised land, right? The second generation is not free from... Uh, hiccups, shall we say, <laughs> in right. their story. Mm -hmm. um, it also, to my eye, and I could be very wrong here, but that doesn't seem to be the point of Deuteronomy 139. The mm -hmm. point is that the first generation had used the second generation as the excuse to not go in. Right. And so this is not about the children being innocent. This is about, look how young they are. You were afraid for them. 
they are more worthy than you, even in their state as they are. So they don't know good from evil. I don't think it's trying to make any qualifying statement on why they are now exempt from it. They were the thing used as the excuse. And now God's going, I'll grant you all that. And they are still better than you because they're going to earn it. They're going to go in. They're going to obey me and listen to me. So um, I'm a little worried that that idiom doesn't support it. And I don't know if that fits the text. Um, But yes, I've also seen uh, both Deuteronomy 1 and Isaiah 7. Uh, Isaiah 7, again, though, that's not the point of that text either. It's a timing thing. So, so Brian, you would your position would essentially be that that's an idiom that refers to a, an age rather than kind of a moral statement. Am I am I understanding that correctly, Tim? I lost you. Did you lose me? Yeah, I lost you for a second. Uh, okay, but, sorry about that. No. Um. So yeah, it's my it's my position that uh, it's not trying to make some sort of moral claim. It's an observational claim. There is an mm-hmm. age where kids are just kind of – we talk about childhood innocence, and there's an age where, yeah, they kind of just aren't aware in that sense of what's going on around them. I don't want to read anything more past that because I see another collection of idioms, right hand from left, of just – it's getting at certain developmental age markers. Um, yeah. And, so go ahead. And I think I, I think as I read those those same idioms, I do – I do read an element of compassion. And so you mentioned Jonah 4, right? He says to Jonah, should I not have compassion on these people who don't know their right hand from their left? So I I think for me, as I look at these texts, again, I think we totally agree. These just simply aren't comprehensive enough, and they're situated in time and space. And this is what you're saying is it doesn't make sense in light of the narrative of Deuteronomy 30 or Deuteronomy uh, to, to make these statements. And to that, I would say, I, I agree that it's not comprehensive, but I do think that when we read doesn't yet know good, good from evil, well, that idiom, even if it is talking about age, why would that be the idiom, not yet know good from evil? I think that speaks to the compassion of God. I, I think that speaks to the culpability in the same way that should I not have compassion on these people who don't know the right hand from their left? And then as I look at those seeds planted, when I look to the New Testament, and I, and I can't help but doing so, when I mm-hmm. add that to the idea of Jesus welcoming children and saying even to the degree the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, and he even remarks about the faith of children, um, I, I totally agree with you in terms of the limitations, but I think there are a few seeds planted here. Um, but Brian, I, w- I want to put back the question to you, because essentially you're saying uh, that that my claim— that God is kind of pointing the finger at them and, and saying essentially what you did, but I see it in the text. Hey, you thought that, you know, you had to get your children out of this, which is why mm-hmm. you didn't want to enter the promised land. I look at that and read Deuteronomy 1, God saying to them essentially, hey, I do care about your children more than you do. And if you would have trusted me, then I would have taken total care of them. Uh, so I see that that kind of subtle indictment but you're saying no. I think it's more of a comparison, uh, a com- or a contrast rather, uh, with the wilderness generation. So you're not seeing any kind of uh, indictment of God saying, "I I love them more than you do" in that passage. Uh, I would say that that's not the primary intention of the passage or primary message. I'm perfectly right. fine with that being a takeaway from it. Uh, yeah. But uh, right, I think the the major theme of any passage is the one that needs to carry, yeah. and yeah. so I'm fine with that being in there. Um, it, it, listeners, if or viewers rather, because listeners wouldn't see this, but if you're seeing like light flashing off and on on my uh, face, it's because I'm doing something dangerous. I am live searching for something. <laughs> da, 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 da. So. Because, Tim, I'm going to give you another point for your side if you want, if you hey, want to argue that Deuteronomy uh, 1 <laughs> is uh, is actually referring to moral culpability. This was a 30-second search live, so please don't take this to the bank. Let's do a little bit more work on this. But, Tim, that is maybe the first usage of the word pair good and evil since the garden. Right. 
Right. I can't yeah. find another uh, example of that. And then you go to First uh, Samuel, which if that's the case, then that is an interesting use of that idiom. Right. They are not old enough to know the tree. Mm-hmm. And that tree is the sin. That tree is the curse. You could make the argument that that means they are not under it. Um, sorry. Uh, just you said that and the, the thought came to mind. But um, that is interesting. That is that word pair. So maybe there is more. I'll yeah. bet. I want to look into that a little bit more. And I've I've seen I've seen people argue that. You know, I'm I'm still testing that in my own mind as well, Brian, because I've seen people mm-hmm. argue uh that in Deuteronomy one in particular, it was a reference back to the garden. And I kind of had the same conclusion you did. I didn't see a contextual link there uh because uh it, it just didn't seem to fit. And yet the phrase itself, that and this is this is what I want to just clarify as much as I can. I'm not trying to argue that that's the main flow of Deuteronomy 1, or even that the phrase itself um, it carries all of the weight. What I am saying is, I think this text does gives us, give us hints at God's character and mm-hmm. the way that he judges, uh, that, that shows us, even though, yes, the wilderness generation is, uh, or I'm sorry, the second generation is going to have to make their own choice, God is not going to visit the sins of the previous generation on that generation. And... Uh, um, you know, that gets into a lot of what we see in, in the Ten Commandments or later on in Jeremiah, where God says these kinds of things. Uh, mm-hmm. But that that idea that they didn't have a choice, I think, fits in well, or at least that they, they were forced to uh, sort of sit with or live with the choices of their their parents. Uh, I think that sits well with what we see in the rest of the Old Testament, as well as, again, what we see in the New uh, with Jesus coming in and talking about the faith of children, uh, the faith of children being a model for all faith. Um, so, Brian, maybe maybe it'd be a good time to turn to some of the the questions that we have in the chat here. Um, mm-hmm. it, I'll, I'll give you another minute to say uh, anything else you want to, but as, as we look to the chat again, we we both know that this is this is the kind of thing that it is so close to the heart. Um, so yeah. we, we want to approach it with tenderness, but that's where, uh, Brian, is, is there anything else that you want to say before we jump into some of these questions? Um, my, my only thing I'll say before we jump into the questions is, right, I am fully in agreement with you that God has a special love and care for children. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so at, at some level, this is an interesting counterpoint because I think we fundamentally probably agree like if you if we had if we wrote down our positions and showed it to 50 you know random people on the street they go oh you have the same view um we're arguing over something that most people wouldn't have a would view Mm -hmm. as fiddly um i'm i'm wanting to keep a little bit more tension and mystery in there you want to be a little bit more explicit um so we, we don't mean to split hairs but uh one of the things I hope we all can kind of get out of this is an appreciation and a desire to go. I want to go to the text and not settle for simple comforting answers that might mm-hmm. be wrong. Um, I want to instead be pushed into the text. Uh, that's, and the reason I said that is because that's why I think Christ means with a childlike faith. Children have a sense of wonder and exploration uh, mm-hmm. with the world around them. A faith that comes to God going, I can't wait to learn more about you. I'm so excited. I just want to ask questions. Um, yeah. That's kind of what we're hoping to engender through the podcast as a whole. And what we hope would help you if you're needing help here to find comfort and find some sort of healing or redemption amidst the grief that we're facing. Uh, but with that, yeah, we've had some really great questions in the chat. So, Tim, why don't you read the first one for us, and I'll take the next one. Yeah, okay. So I hope you're saying I'm saying your name right, Arturo. I, I heard on a podcast, this is his question, I heard on a podcast from the late Dr. Michael Heiser that he leans towards Paul's statement to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. How does that factor into this discussion? Um, I'll, I'll take a stab at this, Brian, just, just very briefly. It's a very interesting phrase that, that Paul uses there in uh, Philippians chapter 1. Um, as we think about that phrase, Paul, of course, had a, a very robust idea of the goodness of the body. You know, uh, scholars refer to the psychosomatic unity of body and spirit. And uh, even as we think about the reverence that Jewish people had for the body, we see that, for instance, in their burial rituals. Uh, in taking care of the body, Jewish people did not believe in cremation. They believed in burial. 
Uh, and yet, of course, Paul seems to have this view that to be absent from the body is present with the Lord, and the sense there is the immediacy of it. Paul in that text is saying, uh, I prefer really to be with the Lord because that's greater, but it's better for me to be here with you right now. And here's how I would, I would answer that. I, I do think that that is helpful in a New Testament perspective. But I think what Brian and I are, are simply trying to do is to say the Old Testament, and this is very clear, the Old Testament itself, if you just look at the Old Testament, just does not have that developed view of what happens to us after we die. Uh, in fact, there are a lot of different uh, views as to exactly how this works, but uh, when it comes to Sheol in the Old Testament, it's very clear, and you can read this in Ecclesiastes, that the righteous and the wicked both go to Sheol, and the question then is, okay, well, what happens? Does, does Jesus come and, and release those who are in Sheol for a later judgment whenever he comes? Uh, what exactly does it mean whenever David, for instance, says, my Holy One won't see decay, or, or Job says, I know my Redeemer lives and I'll see him? Again, there are some people that look at that and say, well, there's shadows of a more developed view. Uh, and of course, just to be clear, Brian and I believe that there is an eternal destiny, right? We believe that ultimately there is a, a, a division of wicked and righteous. And I don't know if you would agree with this, Brian, but I do think, uh, I mean, I agree with Paul, and I think he literally means to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord means that the moment of our death, our spirit separates from our body to be reunified with our body upon resurrection. That's at least how I read the text. But what we're simply saying is the Old Testament doesn't teach that. Brian, uh, what what do you think about that text? And and maybe you can uh, expound on what you think happens according to the New Testament when we die. Sure. I might have you repeat some of that, Tim, because you did drop off like the middle of your talk, unfortunately. Um, yeah, okay. But uh, I'll, I'll give you just a second. But I, I didn't really prepare to talk about soul sleep on, on a podcast about age of accountability, <laughs> but here we are. It is an interesting question. Um mm -hmm. So Dr. Heiser is one of those scholars, and the late Dr. Heiser unfortunately passed away uh, recently. Um, he's one of those scholars that I really liked to read. I put him in the same category. Well, actually, I don't want to like name people because I'm about to say something I have a problem with, but um, that I love their work because I know I'm not going to be bored reading it. Uh, <laughs> if you know anything about Dr. Heiser, uh, Michael Heiser liked to push the envelope a little bit on understanding the Old Testament and the spiritual realm. And I absolutely adore that. Having said that, I think he does not pull it all together on some points. And this is a point where I think he doesn't make his, uh, does not connect it back terribly well. Um, so to be Tim, as you were explaining, that's what we call uh, soul sleep in theological terms. The idea that we just, we don't have passage of time after the soul separates uh, from the body and then we're in the resurrection. The problem with that is you do have a few passages. For example, in Revelation, you have the saints crying out before the throne. They would be disembodied, uh, and mm -hmm. yet they are conscious and aware. You have even in the Old Testament, oh no, we might have to deal with what happens with the uh, the, the witch at Endor, summoning, right. summoning up the soul of Samuel. Mm -hmm. Whatever the heck you do with that story. Um, <laughs> it, the, the point being the transfiguration. You have people before the resurrection coming back and having some sort of consciousness. And so um, I don't know how that fits in necessarily here. It's not a view I necessarily hold. Um, so sorry that I'm not, maybe I'm missing yeah. something, Tim. Could you help me? How does this connect to uh, age of accountability? Yeah. So oh, as if like you'd be, the children will go to the presence of God. Exactly. That's that's what I that's what I okay. assume the the uh, the questioner is saying. Oh, no, he dropped is out again. That as soon as the child would die. <laughs> well, now I know from chat it's Tim dropping out, not me dropping out. So I'm going Lord, to keep talking. That they would go to immediately to to the arms of Christ. Um, am I still cutting out, Brian? You did just again, but that's okay. So, okay. Um, can you summarize your your point that you made that we lost a little bit of earlier? Yeah. Sure. So my my basic point is I don't believe in a soul sleep at all. I think that Paul means what he says that when we die our souls immediately separate from our body for a temporary period of time that we are conscious, are aware of what's going on in heaven and I agree with you Brian the saints before the throne other passages speak to the awareness that we have. 
Uh, and then on the resurrection day, we will receive new bodies that are eternal bodies. Um, and so I, I would agree with that. Ultimately, I, I do believe if, if you had to pin me down and say, what do I think happens? I think that as soon as a child dies, their spirit separates from their body. I believe they go to be in the presence of the Lord, and I believe they will receive resurrected bodies. I don't think that there is a single passage that teaches that, but I think the best indications from Scripture do point in that direction. Um, and and so I, I agree with you, though, Brian, that in terms of Dr. Heiser, I, I don't think that that passage in Philippians chapter 1 uh, somehow negates uh, the ambiguity that we see in the Old Testament, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, and so speaking of that ambiguity, two passages I want to bring up. And chat, please feel free to keep jumping in, asking questions, uh, and letting us know when we drop out. <laughs> but um, from the Psalter, and Psalms is always a little bit interesting, right? We're dealing mm -hmm. with poetry, so let's be careful to not overpush the metaphor. But obviously, a famous one, Psalm 51.5, Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, an even further mm -hmm. extension of that. But Psalm 58.3 also says the wicked go astray from the womb, liars err from birth. So this mm. is part of, I use the word tension, I'm going to keep coming back to that term. This is part of the tension I see, because you do have these passages where you can see God's love for children. That's unambiguous. You have passages that seem to say he is overlooking the sins of the children. Mm -hmm. I have a passage against that, but we'll come back to that. But you have also some more clear statements here that talk about children being sinners from birth, not just having some, but being sinners. Tim, what would you do with those two passages? And I have one more follow-up after that. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I do fundamentally believe in Adamic guilt, right? I, I don't think it's just that we are born with a sin Better nature. watch how you pronounce that. Yeah, yeah. It's true. Uh, I don't believe we're just born with a sin nature. I do believe that we are born guilty of sin. And then I believe that the the first opportunity that we have as fallen creatures, that sin uh, nature is manifested in actual decisions that are sinful. Um, and so I, I think when, and Brian, you mentioned this earlier, this is where we're trying to to bring together what the text says. We're trying to use logic and reason to infer things about uh, about God and about these positions. So this is more of a systematic theology kind of question. Uh, but as I think about this, what I would say is I believe that there is a special, uh, a, a special place, a special judgment where the blood of Christ does atone for the edemic guilt of those children, uh, and therefore they receive a grace of Christ even though they don't have an opportunity for explicit faith in him based on the mental faculties that they have. So, and that okay. goes, of course, well beyond any text. It's simply to say, this is, as we try to understand it from, from a kind of macro perspective, a systematic theological perspective, uh, that, that's how I would come to that conclusion, that the grace of Christ applies and the blood of Christ avails for those children, uh, even though they don't have a capacity to respond to him. Um, okay. And Question. I, I would, oh, go ahead. Uh, and I would say this too, Brian, this this goes well beyond uh, uh, kind of the scope of it for in one sense. But if that's if what I said is even close to true, uh, depending on where you fall, and, and this is true of Calvinists or Arminians or anywhere in between, everyone has to sort of come to terms with that within their own system. There are many mm -hmm. Calvinists who would argue, well, basically— Every child who dies in infancy or before an age of being able to receive Christ uh, is an elect child. That's how they would argue it, or that's how they would see it. Um, there are others who would take more of a Molinist position, and a Molinist position, talk about something we don't have time to get into completely. It's essentially <laughs> yeah, that— just bring that up. And yeah. Go, yeah, Molinism. God has middle knowledge. Have fun. Right. It, it's essentially that God has knowledge not just of what is, but what could have been. He has knowledge of all possible worlds, and essentially yeah. that he chose which world to bring into existence according to his will. And so th that 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 explanation is essentially to say that God chose to bring in this present world, and that the the children or infants who died in this world, uh, it's not that God chose them to die in this world, but that God foresaw that, knowing that they would be saved, uh, and that He 
there's a lot of technical names for this, but essentially he brought this world into being, uh, knowing that those children would be saved. And he did that for the purpose of them being saved because in the, on that view, there would be other possible worlds where they could live. It's very thorny when it comes to Molinism. Uh, but in any case, my, my entire point is our, our purpose in this podcast is to look at it from a textual perspective and say, what does the text tell us? Uh, this is where yeah. there's a lot of help that can come from systematic considerations that help explain this more, uh, really whatever position you hold on some of these other issues. So I just wanted to point that out as a place for our listeners to continue to look. Um, and, and, and really, this is something that every theological position has to work it work out uh, because it is it's it's such a reality of a fallen world that this is something that that is very personal. It's very real. Yeah. Tim, I have one last question, if we have time for that, and then I, I thought we would close by kind of offering some uh, proper implications of these ideas, improper implications, because I'm sure, uh, as yeah. you've, as we both kind of done and thought about this, there, there's some thinking and ways of approaching this topic that don't really lead to flourishing. Um, but first, right. a question. We don't have yeah. to div- dive too deep into this if you don't want to, but my question is about the Passover. The children of Israel are spared. The children of Egypt are not. Are they judged for the sins of their fathers? That would seem to contradict what the Bible says, that everyone dies for their own sin. But if that's the case, then are they dying for their own sin, even though they are children? Yeah, I don't believe in that particular instance they are dying for their own sin. Uh, but how how I would basically understand that, and again, it's a very thorny thorny theological issue. Uh, but how I would basically understand that is that God, in His wisdom, uh, He knows whenever uh, whenever rendering a judgment is necessary in order to prevent uh, an evil that He knows is greater than than whatever judgment falls. And so I'm not saying that the judgment of God is evil, but from an ethical standpoint, I would argue from a utilitarian perspective that God really does know what the greatest possible good is. Uh, and so, and this is where this is where a lot of theologians and philosophers and other things look to an age of accountability and say, listen, this is actually something that can help explain various things that we see in the scriptures. Whenever children are killed, if they automatically go into the presence of God, uh, perhaps that's actually a mercy that God is performing. Um, mm. Again, I think that's a, a very... Um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of exactly the right word that I want to use. On the one hand, we can all see the appeal to that, uh, but on the other hand, that's just not how Scripture itself argues. Um, so, but my point is, I think that that is a a very clear case where God is is judging based on the central premise that our sin does not simply affect us. Uh, in fact, I think in the Passover passage, it's very clearly the parents had a choice because the parents didn't choose that the children are reaping the consequences of those parents' choices. Um, and But at the end of the day, this is, this is what I think God does come back to over and over again, is that ultimately uh, God's creation is God's prerogative. Um, at the end of the day, the ultimate giver of life is the one who has the right to take it away. Um, now, we may look at that, and we may look at God's judgments and say we don't fully understand uh, but I think it is obvious in so many ways that our sin, we, we don't have the right to say, well, our sin should only impact us or else God is unjust. No, that's just not how the world works, and that's not how the world ever was going to work. Um, so I, I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, Brian, but what, how do you read that passage in the, the guilt or lack thereof of those children? Yeah, no, it's a good—I thought you gave a very good answer, Tim. and. Um... I really wanted you to kind of draw out your pastoral background because I think that's something that yeah. uh, is very important to bring in here. So thank you for that. Um, I look at that passage and we have a couple, we have a lot of things going on. They're not people that are going to be in covenant with God. His right. love is clearly for them. Even in the Old Testament, even only with the story up to that point, in you, all of the nations of the earth shall bless themselves. 
right? The Abrahamic covenant, the idea. So God's love is clearly for them, but they are not people in relationship with him. Um, this is a thorny problem. John Walton has gone so far in one of his books, actually, to talk about the Canaanites are incapable of even sinning. That's a wrong category because they're not in mm-hmm. covenant with God. That's too far. We aren't going to go there. Um, yeah. I would point out that the text never equates that they are chosen. They are the, the children that is of Egypt are chosen or killed because of guilt for them. It's God demonstrating his power. Um, mm-hmm. And so, as you very rightly said, the giver of life also, therefore, has the ability to take life. Um, and so it's a text I see brought up quite a lot uh, on how to deal with it. I have always thought that that text doesn't help us much here because that's not the point of the text and doesn't speak to that very much. Um, so that's how I would answer it. I, I thought, though, Tim, you gave us you gave the answer that I would uh, circle around with as well. So as we are, we're coming up on that hour mark, Tim, um, I wanted to kind of give us both a chance to kind of give some maybe final thoughts because this is a heavier topic uh, and yeah. we're both wanting to be very sensitive for it. Um, and there's a question that just came in. Maybe you can look at it while I give my final thoughts. But uh, yeah. here's some things I want to leave us with listeners. First, even if we adopt the firmest, strongest view of the age of accountability. Under no circumstances should you go to a grieving parent who has just miscarried or just lost a kid and say, don't worry, that kid's in heaven. Even if you think that is theologically true, there is a (laughs) lack of care for their grief and a misunderstanding of their need in the moment. Let's be very sensitive to one another. Loss is real, regardless of the eternal destination of that child. Um, that parent has just lost, not, they've lost something worse than losing someone they've known for a long time. They've lost the potential of someone they've could have known. And that is a hard thing to go through. So approach this topic with some grace, some mercy. Do not celebrate as some people point out when a logical conclusion, then be celebrate when a kid dies, because then, you know, at least they got into heaven again, that would not be a proper implication or, or extension of this idea. Let's treat one another with mercy. If you don't know what to say to someone in the midst of grief, as someone who has suffered not this type of grief, but has suffered loss of family members, um, it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I'm just going to be here with you. You don't need to come in and be like this amazing counselor or pastor. Treat people with love, dignity. Let them know they are not alone. Uh, Let them know that you are there, even if you don't understand what's going on. That will go a very, very long way. So that was kind of my one big takeaway Um, because my view is a little bit more there's tension here. And I don't say that pessimistically. I, you put a gun to my head. I think Tim is probably right, but I want to be very clear as a, as a scholar, sorry, I'm hedging my bets maybe, but I want to say, I don't know. I have an inkling Tim is right, but I don't know, but I do know that God loves you. God loves your child more than you could ever possibly know. God does what is right. And God says, be still and know that I'm God. I'm good with that at the end of the day. I can trust with that. So I'm going to turn it over to Tim. What are some final thoughts you want to leave us with? And then we'll answer that question. Yeah. So my final thought is, as we look to the scriptures, again, at times it might be frustrating that we don't have more clear answers. Um, and and that's what I'll ultimately say, too, when when we answer the question that was posed to us. Uh, but I think at least in this case, there might be some good reasons why God limited his answer to this very pressing question. And this is something that's not original with me, but if God had given us more of an answer, it stands to reason that if there were a clear passage that said a child before a particular age is automatically going to go to heaven, that that would lead to some really damaging results, namely and Brian, you you kind of alluded to this, namely the idea that people would misuse that as uh, as an excuse to take the life of children. And, and we see this, unfortunately, even today, that there are parents who have been influenced by certain doctrines of the age of accountability that take the lives of their children into their own hands because they say, well, if this is automatic, then the most loving thing I can do for my child is to not let them pass that age. Well, that would be a horrible error. And this is where I come back to the power of life and death, 
both physical and temporal, as well as spiritual and eternal, is in the hands of God. And this is where, Brian, you and I fundamentally agree, and this is where I do see seeds in the Old Testament that point us to something that grows to fruition. I believe we can fully trust the hands of God with our children, and I believe that there are principles that we can look at in Scripture that show us why they would be judged differently based on their level of awareness and their ability to respond to God in the ways that they can. Again, that doesn't answer every question, uh, but at least as I look at the Scripture, I think there's reasons why God did not fully flesh this out for us, even as I think there's enough for us to hold on to that gives us a, a real hope in those times of crisis. Well said. All right, just before we sign off, one question came in as we're wrapping up and it's so good. I want to take a moment for us to deal with it because I'm sitting here thinking, Tim, I know you read it and I've been thinking about it. So Arturo asks another banger. Well done, Arturo. Uh, Does Jesus's resurrection of young children in scripture, for example, Jairus's daughter and Mark, mean they entered God's presence twice? Um, By extension, by the way, I'm guessing the same question arises with Lazarus and anyone that's resurrected, but we'll, let's stick with the kids here. Um, Tim, what would you say to that? And is so, that a bum deal if you made it to heaven just to get pulled back out? Like, really? Now I have to yeah. go to school? <laughs> I, I think uh, I think John Piper actually preached a sermon about this one time, about what uh, it would have been like for Lazarus after he died. But uh, in my basic answer, my brief answer, I'm going to draw a distinction that's, again, not mine, between resurrection and resuscitation. What happened to Jairus' daughter was not resurrection. She was brought back to life. She was not given eternal life in an eternal body. And so I actually think, uh, based on my understanding of what happened uh, to people who died before Hmm. Jesus basically uh, came and established a dual destiny permanently, uh, I think that she would have gone into Sheol. And I'm not, uh, I, I don't believe in soul sleep, but I don't believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord was an immediate reality for her because of the side of redemptive history that she fell on. In fact, I, I think that's true of everyone that we see in the New Testament. Uh, now, just when I say that, just someone's going to say, well, what about Dorcas? Or what about the man that fell you know, out the window and then Paul resurrected him or brought, res- resuscitated him? And Dad Gummit, I don't have an answer for that at all. So uh, you do some research on that, Arturo, and then you get back to me. Those are good questions, but that's what I would say about Jairus's daughter. <laughs> yeah, that's it's a it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because yeah, I was like, oh, I have a simple answer, and then I keep thinking of these are. By the way, no matter what answer you give, these are some of the like oddities. Um, and, and the key thing is, right? Don't let a specific example or an exception to a rule define the rule. Um, yeah. I would say Jairus' daughter, we're still dealing with the same fundamental uh, theological work as is at play with David and his son. So, yeah, I think it's Sheol. Um, post-cross, you do have to be absent with the, from the bodies to be present with the Lord. So now that gets a little bit more interesting. You do have a, a Greco-Roman idea that the soul did not leave the body for three days. So maybe that's something interesting because I think all of the resurrections post-cross are rather rapid, correct? Unless I'm forgetting something, because I'm thinking of Paul, right? He he gets the guy right back up. So maybe that's at play, not sure, but that's a really good question. And in fact, I'm going to take that away this week and, and mull on that a bit more. I maybe lost my co-host, but that's okay. We're wrapping <laughs> up anyway. Friends, thank you so much for being with us this evening. It's been a bit of a, a disjointed ride, but I hope it's been a helpful one. For any of you out there that have suffered the loss of a child, know that you are seen, you are cared for, you are loved, your pain is real, and we are here for you. God is here for you, and God loves you. 